Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Today we're going to talk with John Schneider. Dr. Schneider is executive director of Nursing Home Ministries. We'll talk about uh, how they're reaching out to those who are so often overlooked and forgotten. Dr. Schneider will be with me in studio later this hour. We'll also talk with uh, Dr. Michael Badriaki. He's an author. He's also one of the plenary speakers at Mission Connection Northwest. Uh, that's coming up, of course, this Friday night and Saturday. He'll be speaking, I believe, on Saturday morning. Looking forward to hearing from him. He's also the author of When Helping Works, Alleviating Fear and Pain in Global Missions. Now, Dr. Badriaki is a graduate of Multnomah, as well as George Fox University. He's uh, currently uh, working elsewhere as a professor. We'll tell you more about that when he joins us in our next hour. Well, today was a very big news day. The final Democratic presidential debate took place. Uh, the pivotal February 3rd Iowa caucuses turned the, the debate rather tense last night. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren sparred over the disputed reports that Sanders had privately told Warren in 2018 that a woman could not realistically become president. Well, as a matter of fact, I did say it. Sanders insisted after one of the CNN debate moderators asserted the conversation had occurred. Later, when asked whether he was unequivocally denying that the conversation took place, he said that is correct. Debate moderator then immediately and matter-of-factly asked Warren, what do you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? Well, that prompted laughter in the debate hall at Drake University in Des Moines and a bewildered chuckle from Sanders. Some commentators have suggested the CNN report of Warren and Sanders' alleged 2018 conversation, which cited sources who were not present for Sanders' alleged remarks was a leak from the Warren campaign intended to blunt Sanders' surge in recent polls. Others suggest it came from the Biden campaign. The truth is, no one actually knows. The Sanders-Warren clash smashed the uh, a more than year-long non-aggression pact between the two candidates and was just one of several flashpoints between the two that emerged during the debate. As the event concluded, Warren appeared to ignore Sanders' invitation for a handshake. Sanders had a different focus early in the debate, and he challenged former Vice President Joe Biden in his initial support for the Iraq War, which he called the worst foreign policy blunder in modern history of the country. Meanwhile, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas and a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee pitched the idea of witness reciprocity on Tuesday during a meeting with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and other GOP leaders who convened to discuss strategy for the upcoming impeachment trial that will decide if President Trump is removed from office. It has been confirmed. The idea would mean if Democrats call a witness, such as Trump's former National Security Advisor John Bolton, Republicans would in turn be allowed to call a witness, likely candidates to be subpoenaed by the the GOP include former Vice President Joe Biden, his son Hunter Biden, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, and the unidentified whistleblower who reported a July phone call between President Trump and the leader of Ukraine. The debate over possible impeachment witnesses comes as the Democrat-controlled House uh, prepared for the imminent vote on advancing articles of impeachment to the Senate, which they did, in fact, do earlier today. More on that later. California Attorney Michael Avenatti was arrested by IRS agents Tuesday evening during a break in a disciplinary hearing in Los Angeles over allegations that the high-profile lawyer scammed a client out of $840,000. The arrest occurred outside the state bar court, where the State Bar of California has initiated proceedings against him. Avenatti is accused of fraud, cheating on his taxes, and lying to investigators as federal federal prosecutors allege that he embezzled funds from clients. The former attorney and 
of uh, Stormy Daniels, whose reputation I don't need to recall, has pleaded not guilty to all charges. A spokesman for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles said that Avenatti was arrested on suspicion of violating his pretrial release. Well, Democrats uh, blocked a vote to support the Iran protesters uh, yesterday, and Britain, France, and Germany suddenly hardened toward Iran after killing the killing of Soleimani. The federal judge has upheld the Trump family separation policy, and House Democrats launched an investigation into the president's Remain in Mexico program. Michael Flynn has asked to withdraw his guilty plea in the case stemming from the Mueller probe, and the 2020 census has no citizenship question but offers assistance in 58 foreign languages. The U.S. will keep billions of dollars of tariffs on Chinese goods in place under, under rather, until after the 2020 election election is leveraged to keep Beijing from violating a phase one trade deal. And Elizabeth Warren has promised to uh, cancel student loan debt using executive power. The U.S. budget deficit has toppled one trillion dollars in 2019 for the first time in seven years. On this day in history, 1559, Britain's Queen Elizabeth I is crowned at Westminster Abbey. On this day in 1892, the original rules of basketball, 1892, devised by James Naismith, are published for the first time in Springfield, Massachusetts, where the game is originated. On this day in 1919 in Boston, a tank containing an estimated 2.3 million gallons of molasses burst, sending the dark syrup coursing through the city's north end, killing 21 people. And in 1929, Martin Luther King Jr. is born in Atlanta, Georgia. In 1943, work is completed on the Pentagon, the headquarters of the U.S. Department of War, now the Department of Defense. In 1973, on this very day, President Richard Nixon announces the suspension of all U.S. offensive action in North Vietnam, citing progress in peace negotiations. In 1989, NATO, the Warsaw Pact, and 12 other European countries adopt a human rights and security agreement in Vienna. And in 1993, an historic disarmament ceremony ends in Paris with the last of 125 countries signing a treaty banning chemical weapons. And finally, on this day in history, 2009, U.S. Airways Captain Chesley Sully Sullenberger Forced, um, force lands his Airbus 320 in the Hudson River after a flock of birds disabled both engines. All 155 people aboard survive. Well, it's certainly been a, a big day in Washington. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Wednesday announced the seven lawmakers who will serve as impeachment managers to prosecute the case against President Trump in his imminent Senate trial. Now, what that means is these are the individuals who will make the case That was made in the House, uh, why they believe the president should be impeached and removed from office. This is about the Constitution of the United States, Pelosi said, as she presented the Democrats' legal team and noted that she put an emphasis on litigators in assembling them. Well, the managers include House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff who will be the lead manager and who directed much of the impeachment inquiry out of his committee, the House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jared Nadler, whose panel drafted the articles of impeachment. She also tapped House Democratic Caucus Chairman Hakeem Jeffries, a Democrat from New York, Representative Jason Crow of Colorado, Val Demings, a Democrat from Florida, Sylvia Garcia, a Democrat from Texas, and Zoe Lofgren, a Democrat from California. Many of the managers were chosen because of their backgrounds. Lofgren has been involved in three presidential impeachment proceedings as a Judiciary Committee staffer during former President Richard Nixon uh, and a committee member uh, during former Bill Clinton impeachment and now as a manager. 
During Clinton's impeachment in 99, there were 13 House impeachment managers. Pelosi chose seven for Trump's trial. And uh, word is that it was somewhat challenging to find as many as 13 this time around. Announcing the managers, she argued the charges against the president will be a strain on his legacy, dramatically referring to an impeachment that will last forever. She said the House on Wednesday will pass a resolution, which they did, to to appropriate funds for the trial and transmit the articles, which they also did, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress to the Senate. More on that, but we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Also, a reminder, we'll talk with uh, John Schneider, Executive Director of Nursing Home Ministries. He'll be with me in studio in just a bit. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. Coming up later, we'll talk with the Executive Director of Nursing Home Ministries, Dr. John Schneider. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has named her seven impeachment managers who will prosecute the case against President Trump in the upcoming Senate trial. Unlike former President Bill Clinton's impeachment trial, where there were 13 managers, Pelosi selected a diverse group of representatives with a range of experience. The emphasis is on litigators, she said, as uh, she made the announcement. The emphasis is making the strongest possible case to protect and defend our Constitution. Well, among them, Representative Adam Schiff from California. He's been the public face of the impeachment inquiry as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. He's a former California state senator and federal prosecutor who successfully prosecuted the first FBI agent ever indicted for espionage in 1990. He became a Regular target for President Trump, who called for Schiff to be punished to be punished for making a mockery of his phone call with the Ukrainian president in the opening hearing of the impeachment inquiry. Schiff has been steeped in impeachment before. In 2000, he entered Congress by defeating GOP incumbent Representative James Rogan, who was a prime target for his central role in one of the 13 House impeachment managers in the Clinton trial. It was the most expensive House race in history at that time. Also among the managers, Representative Gerald Nadler, a Democrat from New York, is he's the longest serving House impeachment manager, was the first elected to Congress in 1992. Prior to that, he served in the New York State Assembly for 16 years. He has a long history of tussling with the president uh, dating back to the 80s and was a chief opponent to Trump's plan to build a television city uh, development in Manhattan, where Trump planned to live in the penthouse of the tallest building of the world, the New York Post reported. The two have sparred for years over Trump's real estate plans, and Nadler is firm that he wouldn't be bullied by Trump. Representative Hakeem Jeffries sits on the Judiciary Committee, is the number five Democrat. He's chairman of the House Democrat Caucus. The latter role means that Jeffries has been in the spotlight for Democrat messaging, and he holds a weekly press conference on what the Democrats are working on. He's considered by colleagues to be a potential future House Speaker. Until then, he is well known for his colorful speech on the House floor, nominating Pelosi to be the House Speaker again in 2019. Representative Zoe Lofgren of, uh, is chair of the House Administration Committee, which has jurisdiction over elections and is a veteran member of the House Judiciary Committee. She's the only member of the House to have worked on three impeachments, Clinton, former President uh, Richard Nixon, and now President Trump. During the Nixon impeachment, which, of course, did not move forward because he resigned, she was a congressional staffer for a member of the House Judiciary Committee. She sat on that committee during Clinton, the, uh, the impeachment, where she argued that 
Clinton's conduct, while bad, didn't warrant an impeachment that would further divide the country and weaken the executive branch. She favored a censure resolution against Clinton. Unlike the left wing of her party, Lofgren didn't want articles of impeachment on Trump's Russia deal included and successfully argued that should be narrowly tailored to the Ukraine controversy. Representative Jason Crow, a Democrat from Colorado, is a lawyer and former um, Army Ranger who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's among the moderate group of freshman Democrats that helped Pelosi win back the House majority. Crow didn't back Pelosi for speaker, honoring a campaign pledge in his swing state. Crow is the only House manager who does not sit on either the House Intelligence or Judiciary Committees that ran the impeachment inquiry, but he helped open the doors to impeachment on Ukraine when he penned an op-ed with six other freshman Democrats with national security and military experience calling for an impeachment inquiry into whether the president withheld security assistance to Ukraine to help with his re-election. Representative Val Deming, a Republican, or excuse me, a Democrat from Florida, is a member of both the House Judiciary and Intelligence Committees, the two lead panels in Trump's impeachment inquiry. She's been a more outspoken proponent of impeachment long before the Ukraine controversy, saying Trump had made numerous attempts to obstruct justice related to the Russia probe. She is the only non-lawyer in the group, but she brings with her more than 25 years of law enforcement experience, working her way up from a patrol officer to eventually becoming chief of police of the Orlando Police Department in 2007. She was the first woman to hold that position. Uh, She was first elected to the House in 2016, represents uh, Orlando including popular tourist attractions like SeaWorld and Walt Disney World. Representative Sylvia Garcia, a Democrat from Texas, is a member of the House Judiciary Committee. She was first elected in 2018 to Congress to represent Houston, along with Veronica Escobar of El Paso, became the first Latina congresswoman from Texas. She's a former Houston Municipal Court judge and former member of the Texas State Senate. Though she's new to Congress, she knew she's known Pelosi rather for a long time through the Houston Democratic Party fundraising circuit and uh, according to the Texas Tribune. Pelosi touted her trailblazing career in her press conference on Wednesday. Garcia is among the 95 House Democrats in July who voted to move forward with an impeachment effort led by fellow Texas uh, uh, Representative Al Green, who accused Trump of fanning racial flames by telling four squad members to go back to their respective countries. Well, the House voted uh, today to transmit the articles of impeachment against President Trump to the Senate, formally paving the way for an historic trial over the president's dealings with Ukraine after weeks of delay. It was rather interesting watching this whole pomp and circumstance uh, of relaying the um, articles of impeachment. It doesn't just happen that they, the gavel bangs, the numbers are counted, and the paperwork is sent over to the Senate. Uh, in preparing to send the articles of impeachment, there was an engrossment ceremony and then a rather solemn and somber walk from the House chambers through some of the more historic uh, elements of the, uh, of the Capitol over to the Senate chambers. Um, where the uh, the documents were presented, and then uh, Mitch McConnell was required to accept them, and there was rather... Um, illustrious uh, set of events leading up to that. Now, before the engrossment ceremony or as part of the ceremony, the House Speaker makes some statements. She's flanked by those who are going to argue in the Senate on behalf of the House. Uh, And uh, as she signed the articles of impeachment, she used uh, uh, probably two dozen pens, sometimes making a single letter with one pen, putting it down, picking up another so that all of those who were involved in the process could keep the pens as a a sort of a commemorative uh, 
uh, memento uh, of the event. Now, this isn't unusual. You see presidents do that, and then they present the pens to those who support whatever action is being taken. Uh, but it was rather peculiar. There was only one signature. It was hers on one document. And so she literally made sometimes just the rounding of an O <laughs> in order to use each pen in some part of the signing of those impeachment documents. But that ceremony took place. It was rather solemn and Mitch McConnell made a few comments uh, among them outlining what the process would be moving forward. And it appears at this point that in earnest, the Senate will take the uh, issue up on Tuesday, although there are a number of preliminary steps leading up to that. Uh, So the articles have been uh, transmitted uh, to the Senate, and that's what will be um, taken up very shortly. Now, rather interesting, at the same time all of this was taking place, I should say the vote in the House on whether or not to Uh, transmit the articles of impeachment to the Senate. President Trump was signing a landmark trade agreement with China, heralding a period of uh, detente in the trade war between the world's two largest economies, fueled by decades of complaints that Beijing was manipulating its currency, stealing trade secrets from American firms and more. Well, the pact detailed in a 94-page document is uh, only the initial phase of a broader deal that Trump said uh, may come in as many as three sections. But he did say, uh, together we are uh, writing the wrongs of the past in the pomp-filled signing ceremony. It doesn't get any bigger than this. Well, one hopes it will in the two phases that follow. Well, the agreement will help grow the U.S. economy, we are told, in 2020 and 2021 by at least a half a point of additional GDP and probably translate into another million jobs on top of what we're already um, seeing. Larry Kudlow, director of the National Economic Council, Uh, said President Trump signed the trade agreement with the Chinese vice premier in the East Room of the White House earlier today. Well, during two years of negotiation, there were occasional setbacks because on some issues we don't see eye to eye, noted the Chinese vice premier who um, represented President Xi Jinping at the signing. But our economic teams didn't give up. The agreement, which was first reported on the 12th of last month, includes commitments from Beijing to halt intellectual property theft, to refrain from currency manipulation, cooperate in financial services, and purchase more than $200 billion in U.S. products over the next two years. Now, some are skeptical as to whether or not the Chinese government will live up to those commitments, but they did sign on to the agreement. The purchases will include up to $50 billion of U.S. agriculture, according to Trump and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, $40 billion of which has been confirmed by Chinese sources. China will also buy $40 billion in services, $50 billion in energy, and $75 billion to $80 billion worth of manufacturing. Trump acknowledges Vice President Mike Pence, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and U.S. Uh, uh, Trade Representative Robert uh, Lighthizer in the ceremony. Lighthizer says the deal is fully enforceable if Beijing fails to live up to its end of the agreement. And the pact includes mechanisms for handling violations of intellectual property rights. Its uh, dispute resolution process will allow either side to appeal if it believes the other is not acting in accordance with the agreement. Well, the document specifies that both China and the U.S. shall ensure fair and equitable market access for businesses that depend on the safety of trade secrets. Uh, Specific measures that uh, will protect pharmaceutical firms, intellectual property, govern patents, block counterfeiting on e-commerce platforms, and prevent exports of brand name knockoffs 
are detailed in that report. A rather incongruous day, but that's what happened on Capitol Hill. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're looking forward to a conversation with an old friend. Dr. John Schneider is Executive Director of Nursing Home Ministries. He'll join me in studio in our next segment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, every once in a while, I'm not sure what the interval is, I receive a um, an e-newsletter from Nursing Home Ministries, and I so appreciate the content of that uh, newsletter because it reminds me of the value of a segment of our population that is far too often overlooked. Many of you know that uh, my 89-year-old mother, I have to think about that, she just celebrated in December her 89th birthday. And uh, living with an 89-year-old, part of our regular conversation is reminding her of the value her life still has, talking about the goodness of God. But that interaction, I think, has contributed to, and it's not just me, it's other members of my family as well, but it's contributed to the fact that she is thriving and she's doing well, despite her physically physical body uh, declining, as one might expect. Um, John Schneider, Dr. Schneider, has been a longtime friend, uh, and I have watched him in this ministry for a number of years, and I am so grateful for the commitment that you have made and are making and the the Ministry of Nursing Home Ministries to a population that is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, far too often overlooked. Well, Dr. Schneider is Executive Director of Nursing Home Ministries. He began as a chaplain back in 1997. Uh, he continues, even though he's the Executive Director, to serve as a chaplain in four care facilities in the greater Portland area. He comes from a pastoral and education background having pastored churches in Montana, North Dakota, and Oregon, as well as having taught in a Christian high school for 10 years. Um, John has been married to uh, my friend, his beautiful wife, Sandy, for nearly 40 years, maybe 40 by now, I'm not sure. Almost 50. Almost 50 now. (laughs) (laughs) So this needs to be updated. I'll have to uh, update my notes. In any uh, case, I am so grateful to have you with us here in studio and to remind our listeners of this vital ministry and uh, a role that perhaps we might consider playing. So welcome. Well, thank you, Georgine. It's a pleasure to be with you. And it's it's interesting to note, when I began this ministry, um, most of the people I was working with regarded me as a, a like a son or a grandson. Uh, now it's more as a peer. And uh, it's uh, when you talk about your mother's 89th uh-huh. uh, birthday, uh, that doesn't sound that far away. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how much closer it sounds as, yes. as the clock keeps ticking. Well, let's talk about the work of nursing home ministries. Uh, a lot of um, our elders who find themselves in facilities around our communities, some of whom were part of a, a church, they were vital members of churches. Right. Some perhaps have never been exposed to the gospel, and they are often, perhaps far too often, relegated to, well, they're at the end of life. I like the way uh, you uh, sign your newsletter, for those on the edge of eternity, uh, we tend to think, well, they, they're no longer contributing members of the church, and therefore they're overlooked in ways that I think uh, really reflects poorly on the church in general. Talk about nursing home ministries, your, your emphasis, and what role you think we ought to be playing uh, in ministering to this population. Okay. Uh, nursing home ministries is a uh, ministry that began uh, in 1975 here in the Portland area. Uh, but we're now about 160 strong active chaplains in 15 states, uh, and we're serving in 236 facilities. And uh, just going over th- some statistics from, from the past six years, 
Uh, our chaplains have held over 30,000 services, ministering to uh, 450,000 attendees, mm. uh, and then some 300,000 one-on-one visits. And uh, that is really the key. We're committed to serving the, the spiritual needs of, uh, uh, of care centers, adult care centers, uh, not just nursing homes. Uh, back when this ministry began, that was the, the main focus. But now, of course, there's, there's independent living, there's assisted living, there's uh, memory care, there are rehab centers, adult foster care centers are, are seeming like there's one on every block. And so the, uh, the opportunities are, are massive. Uh, but again, like uh, uh, the Lord said, you know, the, the, the workers are few. Um, and uh, so that's what Nursing Home Ministries is trying to do, uh, bring people in that will uh, serve in care centers, uh, do so on a regular basis, and help meet the spiritual needs uh, of the people there. The, the, uh, uh, the regulatory agencies uh, mandate that uh, this be done. So care centers are, are we get uh, regular contacts from, from care centers saying, can you send us someone? And... Uh, uh, many times uh, we're not able because we, again, the, the laborers are few. Uh, but it's a, it's a wonderful ministry, and uh, there's so many kinds of things. Uh, uh, I was just looking at uh, some of the things that even our chaplains do. Uh, we a lot of times just think of it as, as uh, you know, uh, going in and holding a, a worship service. Uh, but not all, of our, not all of our chaplains do that. Some just go in and read. Others go in and, and uh, uh, just sing. Some just uh, do one-on-one visits, just uh, knock on doors and sit down and, and uh, spend a few minutes with uh, the, uh, the people there in that apartment and, and share the love of Christ. Uh, Jesus said, even a cup of water in my name uh, doesn't go unnoticed. And uh, sometimes that's all they need is a cup of water, is to know that they are still there, they're still valued. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I would say without exception, if you talk to uh, our chaplains, uh, they'll say when they come away from uh, having spent time with these uh, elderly in the in the care facilities that they are they are strengthened and their their faith is encouraged and their love of the Lord is is magnified for, through those moments with yeah. the, the elderly. You write in the newsletter that came out, I think, in uh, the first of this month. It's not uncommon for a nursing home ministry chaplain to hear questions and comments like, "Does God really care about me? God must be punishing me. I wish that God would take me home now." I never thought I'd end up like this. Where is my family? My pastor seldom visit me. visits me. I used to go to church but can't anymore. These are, are common things that are, are being said. You know, statistically, and I think sometimes we rely too heavily on statistics, yeah. if you have limited resource, uh, you're better off, and this is sort of a maybe a, a corporate economic model, you're better off investing in a younger generation where you're yeah. likely to see more return than an older generation that is not in a position to uh, return uh, benefit to the same degree. What do you say to that approach, and what are we missing? Well, first of all, I think we have a biblical mandate to, uh, to care for those that uh, are unable to care for themselves, uh, not only the, on, and, and we're doing a better job of caring for the preborn. but uh, now as we get to the end of life, uh, you know, the, the Scripture mandates that we care for widows and, and those who have uh, needs as they get older. Um, and I don't think it's a I don't think it's a, a a conscious thing that the church is doing in in ignoring these elderly. But again, like you said, it's a it's a matter of uh, finite resources, finite 
uh, it, it's difficult sometimes to get uh, you know people just to do the, the the work of the ministry within the the local church with you know with uh, teaching ministries and those kinds of things and to ask that they go and and visit uh, uh, someone who is down the road uh, shut up in a care center that uh, you know will probably never darken the doors of the church uh, and if they do probably won't be able to uh, offer a whole a lot of uh, uh, of service. Um, it is difficult, and I think that's why ministry such as uh, as NHM Nursing Home Ministries is is important. But uh, I, I really think uh, church members, and, and again, when the Bible talks about uh, in Ephesians about doing the work of the ministry, uh, that each one of us is supposed to be doing that. Uh, I think we, uh, I, I think church members, uh, believers, really miss out. Mm-hmm. on the opportunities uh, not only to serve but then to be ministered to uh, because there's so many wonderful people uh, and, and have had lived lives that have been so interesting. And, and, and uh, as you know, I, and I'm finding this the older I get uh, when I deal with younger people, uh, they want to know, you know, what was life like back then? <laughs> it's kind yeah. of sobering. <laughs> but uh, when, when you see how the Lord has... has where they have brought them, he has brought them from, and where they are at. Um, it, it, if they're discouraged, we can encourage them, and in the same sense as we encourage them, we ourselves are encouraged. Do you see many people who don't have a church background, or perhaps because of uh, bitterness or discouragement, had declined to follow Jesus, that they are open at that end of the continuum to hearing the gospel, or are more open to hearing a testimony? Yes, you know, and I think that's been one of the misconceptions, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not sure where exactly that came from, because, you know, you've heard the statistics that uh, you're most likely to, to accept Christ uh, before the age of 18. and uh, But these people who, again, are on the edge of eternity, and they are very much uh, aware of their own mortality. Uh, yes, we find a number of people that are uh, are bitter and are defensive, uh, but I think this is a. I, I think this is one of the most ripe uh, fields for uh, winning people to Christ uh, that there is, mm-hmm. um, because they understand their mortality and they they understand that they have a need and they are beginning to think more and more about what comes next, uh, what happens when I die, and uh, we're seeing uh, great. Uh, responses on the parts of uh, of these individuals uh, and and many who were not uh, church uh, uh, goers as yeah. younger people. Yeah, we're going to continue our conversation again, talking this afternoon with Dr. John Schneider. He is uh, d- executive director of Nursing Home Ministries. is also the chaplain of a number of facilities in our community as well. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. We're back 49 minutes after um, 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Dr. John Schneider. He is Executive Director of Nursing Home Ministries. He also serves as chaplain uh, in several of the uh, facilities here in the Portland metro area. What you describe is a, a, a field that's ripe for the harvest. But as you mentioned, there are very few laborers to minister to and to engage and benefit from. Uh, ministering to those who are in nursing facilities of various descriptions. What what should we be doing? How can we engage? Um, I think as we listen to you talk about uh, the need, 
Uh, We're challenged to consider, you know, walking into a facility, and it depends on what type of facility, can be sort of depressing. We don't want to think about our own mortality. And sometimes we just, we overlook that um, area of ministry for for reasons we don't even want to admit out loud. What should we be doing and, and what can we do to minister in our communities? Well, first of all, I think uh, a lot of times when we think of, of chaplaincy work, we think of uh, professionals, those that have maybe been uh, trained uh, uh, biblically and, uh, and theologically, and a number of our chaplains are that. But, but uh, more and more we're finding uh, our chaplains coming from, uh, from secular uh, vocations, uh, just people who have a, a heart for the Lord. Uh, of course, we want individuals who have a... Um, uh, who love the Lord and have a have some biblical understanding of uh, of how to uh, bring someone to Christ and lead them there if that is is uh, the case, but most of all, it just means having a not only a heart for the Lord but having a heart for for the elderly. Uh, I have a sheet here that things uh, if you don't want to, if you don't think you can be a chaplain, you can be a volunteer. Uh, and there's all kinds of things, uh, all kinds of talents that can be brought to bear uh, in a uh, in a care center. Uh, if you have any artistic skills, uh, you can use those. If you uh, if you like to play games, you can go and, and play games with them. You can just go in, and in many cases, uh, people can't uh, can't see. You can you can read scripture to them, read books to them. Uh, you can do if you have a ability to sing, and even if you don't have an ability to sing, you can make a joyful noise. You can you can go in and sing. You can offer to, to provide transportation. Uh, you can offer to become a, a chaperone, as uh, many of the uh, Facilities do outings, and it, uh, one of the things I've done on several occasions is, is gone with uh, some of them on their bus, and, and what a what a it's a, it's just a real blast. It's a real kick. Maybe if you have computer skills, you can do some computer training, crafts, uh, pet therapy. We have one chaplain who uh, just recently lost his uh, best friend, uh, a dog, but he would take his dog with him, uh, and uh, dogs and little kids are uh, always a big draw. <laughs> Uh, if you have a uh, things like that, quilting. Uh, we have a number of uh, ladies and and uh, several churches that provide uh, lap robes for uh, uh, for our uh, residents in a number of facilities, and and those go over real big. Um, offering to clean, uh, do some laundry. I mean, there's the the types of things that you could do to uh, to assist and to volunteer and. Uh, is is literally endless. Yeah, yeah. And that's so good to hear. I think, and maybe I'm overstating the case, but I think many of us who are sitting in the pews at church are bored. We benefit from the ministry that is presented to us by those who are called to full-time ministry, the, uh, but we are not engaged in ministering to others. And this is an opportunity, it seems to me, that doesn't require um, a doctorate. It doesn't require Bible college it does require a heart of compassion and yes. generosity to minister to people who desperately need just a, a, a touch, just a conversation, a smile, uh, the ministry of presence. And this is that opportunity. What role do you see the church playing? I know that um, one of the challenges for those who have come from a church background, who find themselves in one of these facilities, is that they are no longer part of a church that they had been a vital member of. Is there a role for the church in general to play in ministering to those in their communities in facilities? Well, definitely. And one of the things as a ministry that we are hoping to do in, in the coming months is to, um, is to contact. We're, we're going to use Clark County as a pilot program. 
uh, and we're going to contact. Uh, Clark County has uh, nine nursing homes, 30 assisted living communities, and 359 adult family residential homes. And what we are hoping to do is to contact each one of those facilities um, and uh, ask them what their spiritual needs are. Some may not need, you know, require them. They might be met. But if they are not being met, then our hope is to put them in touch with uh, a local church, one that's within a few blocks, um, and and show the need to the local church and uh, say this is someone, you know, this is a place that's within a couple of blocks of you uh, that needs such and such. Can you help us? Um, the number of chaplains that we have uh, will not uh, do the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to have the help and the support of, of local churches. And, and that's why I think if we can put them in touch with churches that are in their neighborhoods, um, it to me, seems to me it would be a, a no-brainer that uh, if people have a heart for the Lord and, and want to do, do as he commands uh, that we should be able to uh, meet the spiritual needs of those facilities. Oh, absolutely. And what an opportunity for a youth ministry yeah. to go to these local facilities and minister to the grandparents who are there and for children's ministry to go yep. and, you know, seasonally perform yep. uh, and just uh, fellowship. And, and as you mentioned, dogs and children are <laughs> pretty popular in oh, these, yes. and, uh, these facilities. And where we have uh, families that uh, are chaplains, several number of our chaplains take their families with them and, and uh, when I'm thinking in particular down in the uh, Eugene area, took his t- kids from the time they were little. Now they are grown, and they're still carrying on that ministry. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a great training field uh, for compassion and, and service for our kids. Now, for churches in the Clark County area that might be interested in learning more and partnering with nursing home ministries, what's the best way for them to do that? Are you going to reach out to them, or would you prefer that? We're going to be reaching out to them, uh-huh. but if they don't want to wait, they can uh, contact us at, uh, at nursinghomeministries.com uh, and uh, or uh, email us at uh, nhminc. Dot, uh, at comcast.com, and uh, we'll get you all the information, and we'll make sure we're out there to, to meet with you and uh, put you in touch with the uh, the facilities that are in your area. And we are hope to do it uh, eventually, too, in, in the Portland area, but uh, that's a rather daunting task, at least a lot <laughs> more so than Clark County right now. Well, it's a good start, yes. and uh, we're just a hop, skip, and a jump across the river. So, yep. Lord willing, as Vancouver becomes a successful pilot project, um, the uh, Portland metro area can follow uh, suit. I would really recommend that our listeners uh, subscribe to the e-newsletter um, that I receive from time to time that reminds me of the ministry, that lets me know what's happening, and uh, just inspires me to uh, be more effective and mindful of those who are aging among us. Now, like you, I'm aging. <laughs> you know, the day may come. Well, when... yeah, I, you wouldn't know it, Georgie. <laughs> well... <laughs> you look like you did the day I met you. So <laughs> well, The numbers tell the tale, but um, I, I just, I've so appreciated my parents' generation and the contribution they've made to my life, and even now, as I bring together some of my mother's elderly friends, and that population has gotten smaller and smaller, how I've come to enjoy listening uh, to their conversation and uh, them talking about the lives that they've lived and the faithfulness they've experienced in walking with God. It's such a a great um, benefit. And to be able to encourage them, uh, in fact, uh, for my mother's birthday every year, I, I give a formal high tea and invite her remaining elderly friends. And uh, part of what I try to do there is to encourage them to see the value in the life that God has allowed them to continue to live. One of them is 94, I think, 95. Yeah. And 
Uh, others are right around my mother's age. And to see the light on their face, to have someone who's younger, they, they helped to raise me, to tell them, I see the value in your life. Yes. I appreciate you, how I, I recognize the investment that you made uh, for me personally, but your generation has made. What a tremendous difference. One and, of my, and to know that they're still making absolutely, a difference. Absolutely. Um, what a difference that yeah. makes, the light that I see in their faces. Oh, yeah. And I'm not exaggerating. I don't have to make something up. Nope. This is just true. Uh, and um, what a gift to – it's reciprocal, as you mentioned earlier. You you give, but you also receive in that circumstance. Well, and I think the message that I, I, I try to hit home again and again with these elderly people is one that I think we who are younger need to uh, latch on to, too, is that as long as you have breath and we have breath, God has a work for us to do. Absolutely. God wants to use us. You may be laid up. You can pray. But for those of us who are younger and still strong and can and can move and can serve and can, uh, we need to be out there doing that. We can't just, like you said, just sit back and, you know, we're, we, we go to church, we are ministered to there to do the work of the ministry. That is our job. That is what we are ta- taught to do and told to do and commanded to do. And uh, I think this is one of the best ways to do it, uh, to these who need it the most, um, to share Christ and the love of Christ with them. Absolutely. Well, once again, I thank you so much for your faithfulness to this population. Um, one day you and I will be there, sooner probably. Than well, I, I am there. That's, <laughs> um, but I, I'm really grateful to your faith for your faithfulness and nursing home ministries that continues to minister and want to encourage our listeners to seize the opportunity to do the same. Nursing Home Ministries, check them out online and see how God might use you in ministering uh, to these dear elder saints. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Michael Badriaki. He is an author. When Helping Works, Alleviating Fear and Pain in Global Missions, he's a plenary speaker at Mission Connection Northwest. He'll be on stage on Saturday morning. He's also going to be presenting a workshop, as will all of the plenary speakers at Mission Connection Northwest 2020, this year at Rolling Hills Community Church. By the way, the event, as has always been the case, is free, but pre-registration is highly recommended in that it's a very popular event, and you may not have the opportunity to join us if you haven't done so. You also have an opportunity to see all of the workshops, select which among them you'd like to attend, and plan on a great weekend. In addition to the plenary speakers and the workshops that are listed, there are some special guests that I think you will thoroughly enjoy from various places around the world. So uh, Mission Connection Friday night and all day Saturday. We'll be broadcasting from 4 to 6 uh, at Rolling Hills on Friday afternoon. And then uh, I have the opportunity, along with Bill McLeod, to help emcee the event for the rest of the weekend. So I'm looking forward to being blessed and challenged and inspired. The theme this year really focuses on who we are in Christ. We are one voice. We are uh, one in purpose. And so we're uh, we're excited and hope you plan to uh, to join us. Again, go to missionconnection.com. Uh, com to, uh, I think it's com, might be org, uh, well, you can Google it. Anyway, Mission Connection uh, for registration and to uh, get all the important details. Leadership uh, Connection is also taking place on Thursday, so you might want to make note of that as well. Again, Michael Badriaki will join us uh, later this hour. Well, the uh, Democrats held their last debate before the first ballots uh, are going to be cast in the contest for who will uh, win the Democrat Party nomination. 
Uh, according to some observers, and you can decide for yourselves if you had the opportunity to watch it, Klobuchar had a really good night. Sanders took a lot of incoming, which isn't all that surprising. One commentator pointed out that Amy Klobuchar actually had a really good night. She cut through the noise on a number of issues on foreign policy, health care, some things like the last debate had moments that kind of separated her, but this time she had a better showing. Uh, Bernie Sanders took a lot of incoming uh, because, of course, he is among the fun- front runners. Uh, They were expecting to see Joe Biden take more, but uh, Sanders took the most, and that may have been orchestrated by his uh, rival. Uh, uh, They also noted an interesting way that CNN political correspondent uh, Abby Phillip asked about the dust-up between Sanders uh, and his rival, uh, um, Senator Warren, uh, asking, Senator Sanders, uh, I do want to be clear here. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. Uh, That is correct, Sanders answered. Senator Warren, what did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win an election? Well, Phillips um, then asked Warren, which sparked an audible laughs in the auditorium and a shake of the head from Sanders, if you caught the uh, controversy there. One person who didn't garner much attention on Tuesday was former Vice President Joe Biden, who made his case that he could bring everyone together in order for him to beat uh, President Trump and that his fellow candidates could not. Um, it was uh, a back and forth, as these kinds of contests are. There were the fewest number of, of candidates on the stage. Uh, and if you didn't have the opportunity to watch, because there's so much else going on, uh, you can also always find that online. Watch it from start to finish. And again, uh, the first contest will begin in just a couple of weeks for the Democrats. Well, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn moved to, on Tuesday to withdraw his guilty plea for lying to the FBI in the Russia probe, citing bad faith by the government. Well, the court filing came just days after the Justice Department reversed course to recommend up to six months of prison time in his case, alleging he was not fully cooperating or accepting responsibility for his actions. But in the court filing yesterday, his legal team said he moved to withdraw his plea because the government's bad faith, vindictiveness and the breach of the plea agreement. Well, the prosecution had shown abject bad faith in pure retaliation against Mr. Flynn since he retained new counsel. Flynn's attorneys wrote in the filing, this can only be because with new unconflicted counsel, Mr. Flynn refused to lie for the prosecution. The filing continued, justice is not a game and there should be no room for such gamesmanship in the Department of Justice. Well, in the court filing, Flynn's lawyer said the Justice Department is attempting to rewrite history by withdrawing its recommendation that he be sentenced to probation and by suggesting he had not been forthcoming or cooperative. Now, one would have thought after all this time, this was already resolved, but no. Michael T. Flynn is innocent. Mr. Flynn has cooperated with the government in good faith for two years. He gave the prosecution his full cooperation, the attorneys added. Well, this case stemmed from a 2017 FBI interview in which he was asked about his conversations with former Russian ambassador to the U.S., Sergei Kislyak. Uh, Flynn ultimately pled guilty to making false statements regarding those conversations during his interview as part of former special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. Flynn is scheduled to be sentenced on the 28th of this month in Washington, federal court, uh, in federal court by um, Judge Emmett Sullivan. The judge last December rejected claims from Flynn's lawyers that he was pressured to plead guilty to lying to federal investigators about his contacts with the Russian diplomat. His lawyers also had claimed the government withheld critical evidence that may have uh, favored their client. It's been one atrocity after another. Sidney Powell, one of Flynn's lawyers, said on Fox News Hannity Tuesday night, the recent sentencing note is full of lies, end quote. 
Well, Justice Department wrote in its sentencing memorandum last week that Flynn's conduct was more than just a series of lies. It was an abuse of trust. So the back and forth there continues. Well, the memorandum continued. The government acknowledges that the defendant's history of military service, his prior assistance to the government, though not substantial, may distinguish him from these other defendants. The government asks the court to reconsider all of these factors and to impose an appropriate sentence. Again, the 28th of this month. So it won't linger for much longer. Well, there's a new Gallup poll. It's an annual survey of ideological and political leanings in the latest edition of the American people. It provides some interesting insight as we approach the 2020 elections. Well, according to the poll's summary, as Americans continue to lean more Democratic than Republican in their party preferences in 2019, the ideological balance of the country remained center-right, with 37% of Americans, on average, identifying as conservative during the year, 35% as moderate, and 24% as liberal. Now, you have to keep in mind that the line between conservative, moderate, and liberal is in the mind of the beholder. You might say you're conservative, but you mean by that something quite different from someone who says they're moderate. You two may believe the same things at the same uh, to the same degree, but use different words to describe it. So I'm not sure how helpful this is, but this represents a 2% increase since 2018 of self-described conservatives and a 2% decrease in the number of self-described liberals. The number of moderates has stayed the same. Well, that may seem a small fluctuation, but it's a notable one. Nearly three quarters of Americans identify as conservative or moderate, while less than one quarter call themselves liberal at a time when half the Democrat Party identifies as liberal. Now, how will that translate in uh, votes cast in November? Again, not clear. The Wall Street Journal notes that a major political trend of the past generation is the increasing number of Americans who identify as liberal. 17% in 1992, rising to a peak of 26% in 2017 and dropping to 24% in 2019. Well, this led to predictions of an emerging Democratic majority made up of minority, young and affluent white liberal voters. In fact, when Barack Obama won the presidency in 2008, Democrat strategist and Bill Clinton ally James Carville declared Democrats would rule for the next 40 years. Two years later, Republicans enjoyed a historic, historic, some would say hysteric, depending on your political view, a historic wave election, winning back the House and taking control of the Senate four years later. All of that to say, we really don't know, but it's an interesting survey. And it's uh, been conducted for a number of years, so you can make of it what you will. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Michael Badriaki. Dr. Badriaki is an author. When Helping Works, Alleviating Fear and Pain in Global Missions, he's also one of four plenary speakers at Mission Connection Northwest. We'll talk about uh, his plenary speech as well as the workshop he'll uh, be presenting uh, at Mission Connection as well, Friday night and all day Saturday. Well, U.S. military security forces detained three civilians suspected of being under the influence of drugs late Tuesday night for attempting to drive onto a base in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, with a live mortar round in their car. Well, the Navy officials sus- uh, suspects the civilians were simply stoned and didn't represent a terrorist threat, but it's not immediately clear where the live mortar round came from and what the suspect's motivation was. Well, the base was reportedly shut down for hours after the mortar was discovered. 
Uh, base spokesman Charles Anthony referred to the mortar as an explosive device and deadly weapon, but said no firing device was discovered in the car. He also said the round could have been rigged to explode without a firing device, but officials found no evidence that the mortar was set to go off. According to Anthony, the gate where the car was found is usually heavily guarded, and the smell of marijuana tipped off base security. The security guard first noticed the smell of marijuana and then looked inside the vehicle and saw what was potential ordinance. The base was shut down from one, or rather 10.30 p.m. Tuesday to allow a bomb squad to investigate the car. The gates were closed to incoming and outgoing traffic for two hours, but no one was injured during the incident. Naval Criminal Investigation Resources, or NCIS, actually it's services, apprehended the suspects and will continue to conduct the investigation. But given events most recently there, it was taken very seriously. And Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev has announced that the entire government is resigning in a surprise statement released shortly after President Vladimir Putin delivered his annual State of the Nation address. Accepting the resignation, Putin thanked the ministries for their hard work and asked them to function as a caretaker government until a new one can be formed. Well, Medvedev and Putin had met for a work meeting to discuss the State of the Nation address earlier in, in the day today, the Kremlin said. Medvedev Uh, explained that the cabinet is resigning in accordance with Article 117 of the Russian Constitution, which states that the government can offer its resignation to the president, who can either accept or reject it. I'm sure there was absolutely no pressure. Well, during his speech, Putin said that he intended to create the position of Deputy Secretary of Russia's Security Council, which would be offered to Medvedev. Uh, The move um, to the new role will mean Russia will have a new prime minister when a new government is formed. Putin also proposed multiple amendments to Russia's constitution. Apparently he can just propose them. His proposals would entail substantial changes to the constitution as well as to the entire balance of power, the power of the executive, the power of the legislature, the power of the judiciary. In this context, it is obvious that as the government, we must provide the president with the capability to make all decisions. Wow. Which are required to um, implement the proposed plan. Uh, Medvedev, the current prime minister, said announcing the uh, in mass resignation. Well, he became prime minister in 2012 after serving four years as president. He currently heads the ruling United Russia Party. Under Putin's plan, the state Duma, the lower house of parliament, will be granted the power to appoint the prime minister and the rest of the cabinet, as opposed to just approving their their candidacies, as is currently the case. Another idea voiced by, voiced rather by the president of Russia is to make the consultation body, the state council, a permanent fixture, which... Um, its uh, status and role written into the Constitution. The president praised the council's effectiveness, stressing that its work, uh, working groups ensure the most important problems for the people are thoroughly looked into. Russia, in Global Affairs editor-in-chief, uh, said that the uh, change will be a step toward the diversification of power at a time when the country is being increasingly governed in a manual control mode and fully fixated on the president. Well, the resignation uh, symbolizes the current reboot of the political system ahead of the 2021 parliamentary and 2024 presidential elections. Uh, He went on to say he's head of the Moscow-based Institute for Socioeconomic and Political Studies. The cabinet's resignation is also tied in with the constitutional amendment package proposed by the president. A possible departure for the outgoing cabinet was hinted at by the Russian president a year ago when he promised personnel changes dependent on how well the top officials handled national priority projects. 
Although uh, uh, thanking Medvedev and his team for their work, Putin also said that not everything has been accomplished. The nationwide programs are aimed at raising living standards and bettering the well-being of Russians. They encompass many spheres, including the improvement of education, housing and health care services. And some observers have suggested that these new changes would uh, make it easier for Mr. Putin to retain his position as president for a much longer period of time without being challenged. Well, ladies and gentlemen, despite to what we have been told, we're now learning that, um, well, the chances of any significant snowfall in the Portland metro area are over. Now, I know, uh, Clark, you've been following this by a much more conservative um, meteorologist than most of us. Would you accept that that is uh, what your sources are saying? Did they suggest we were hyped on this whole thing or that there was a real possibility we would see severe uh, winter weather here in the Portland area. Moving the mic forward, he prepares to speak. Um, I, there was a potential, but uh, this meteorologist specifically said that he doesn't post some of these uh, weather models uh, online uh, just because they can be a little bit crazy so many days out, which yes. is when all the insanity was what we were hearing. And then he said that stuff makes it around social media and people freak out. He said it's irresponsible. So the gist of it is, yep, there was a possibility that something was coming, but uh, it was one of those things where you'd know more as we got closer. And when we got closer, it turns out that uh, the storm stayed further or the cold air stayed further north of us. Seattle got it, but not us. Yeah. My understanding is, and you can confirm this with the the guy that you follow, um, my understanding is we're in about a three-week period where we could still see the possibility of some snow um, and oh, then, we had it in February last year. It could still happen. But in as far as this little capsule of the last week, this is it for for now. I mean, we're warming up this weekend. Yeah. But um, again, I was told that, um, or at least my understanding is that over the next several weeks, that's the most likely period of time that we could see some snow. I, I did go out and I bought some chains for my car, but that's as far as it went. Good for you. <laughs> No, no comments on that. No, no, that that's Seems responsible. Reasonable. Yeah. Well, it's a new vehicle, as uh, you may or may not know, listeners. I totaled my car at the end of last year. It's a long story. I don't want to talk about it. Um, but I ended up getting the same make and model, slightly different. It might be a slightly different model. Anyway, uh, it's the same vehicle with some uh, changes, and so I, I didn't have change for this car. I did have them for the other one, so I needed to go out and get them. And just better to be safe than sorry. I'm not sure I would have a clue how to put them on. And that is a big part of the whole thing about yeah. having chains. Yeah. Well, I intended if if it looked like the bad weather was coming, I would bring them into the house, you know, take them out and figure out how they're supposed to be hooked up. But It's easier to do that when you're trying to put them on the tires. Yeah, but I figured if I read through it, I actually read instructions. I thought that might at least prepare me for what to expect. I've tried that too. It's much easier if you're doing it hands-on while you're reading the instructions because the instructions are never yeah, all that clear and helpful. the diagrams are never great. Well, that's true. That's true. Anyway, I'm prepared for whatever might come. That's good because I got a ride with you tomorrow. <laughs> that's true. They're in the car, so we're good. And having you in the car means that if we were to have a snow flurry, I wouldn't have to mess with them. Agreed? I'll bring my snow pants. <laughs> okay, bring your snow pants. Well, we've been talking all week about Mission Connection Northwest. This is a premier event here in the Portland metro area. And if you've never attended, let me encourage you to consider coming uh, this year. It's uh, such a tremendous collection of um, best practices, people who are on the front lines, people uh, who can uh, offer insight 
on how to minister in various circumstances. And if you go to the Mission Connection website, you'll find uh, the list of categories and workshops and the caliber of people who have come from all over the country to provide training and resource. It really is remarkable. If you are wondering, you know, where do I fit in the body of Christ? What role am I called to play? Am I equipped to play in the Great Commission? Uh, Maybe I'm bored in my faith because I'm not really doing anything constructive, but I want to be a part of the mobilization of the church. A Mission Connection really is a great opportunity uh, to learn what's going on, the exhibits that are available, the resources. You have people there who uh, you have the opportunity to talk with, to give you some background. Maybe you're just discouraged. Is is the, the church being effective at all in the world? One of the things I appreciate about Mission Connection is hearing the testimonies of those who are doing the work of missions here at home and abroad. Uh, talk about what they're witnessing uh, on the ground. So uh, once again, I want to encourage you to go to the website because pre-registration is required. Now, there's a slight possibility you could you could register on site, but I wouldn't count on that because uh, this is a big event and a lot of people come and it may not um, be open any longer by the time we start on Friday night. So do make note of that. Coming up, we'll talk with one of the plenary speakers, Dr. Michael Badriaki, about that very thing. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you probably know by now, Mission Connection Northwest is presenting its 19th annual event coming up this weekend, Friday night and all day Saturday, at Rolling Hills Community Church in Tualatin. Uh, This year, the theme is One Body, One Voice, One Mission. We hope that you're going to be a part of that event. Among the keynote speakers, uh, we've got Dick Brogdon, Becky Pippert, uh, Stephen Yoon, as well as uh, more than 100 workshops, 95 exhibits relating to missions, and so on. Well, another of the plenary speakers is Dr. Michael Badriaki. I had an opportunity last year to speak with him very briefly, was very impressed. Well, he is going to be one of the plenary speakers at Mission Connection this year. He was born in Kenya, raised in Uganda. His book, When Helping Works, Alleviating Fear and Pain in Global Missions, was published in 2017. He earned a doctorate in leadership and global perspectives from George Fox University. He holds a master's degree in intercultural and pastoral studies from Multnomah University. He's worked for for 20 years globally in holistic missions, education, global health and consulting and leadership development. He and his family co-founded the Global Leadership Community, where they nurture leadership through education. And we are just delighted he's coming back to the Portland area to be a part of Mission Connection Northwest 2020. Dr. Badriaki, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to welcoming you back home. Thank you for having me, Jadine, and really. I uh, love your show, and uh, I'm a fan, and uh, so uh, it's always uh, good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Now, this year, yeah. the theme is One Body, One Voice, One Mission, and it, it states what's true about us that we don't always necessarily appreciate or strive to demonstrate. Talk a little bit about your role in Mission Connection uh, Northwest and what you'll be presenting as one of the plenary speakers. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to come and uh, share about the uh, from a biblical perspective, what it really means to uh, be a united body of Christ, and uh, how I think most of the time this uh, conversation is hijacked by anxiety and, uh, in many ways, legitimate pain and uh, uh, and all sorts of uh, 
reason, but I, I, I'm looking forward to being able to break it down uh, as, as, uh, in the manner of what the essentials are for us as Christians to stay united, uh, mainly because of Christ's finished work on the cross and uh, uh, less of what we think we would we would prefer or mm-hmm. not from each other. Yeah. That is such a timely message because uh, we're in a very... Um, divisive time where we are encouraged to segregate ourselves according to our preferences, which runs counter to what the scripture tells us is true about us and what God is calling us to do as we uh, strive to fulfill the Great Commission together. I should mention that you are currently a professor at Lancaster Bible College in Pennsylvania. Uh, you and your family, your wife, Kristen, and daughter are currently involved in, in ministry and work there. Uh, and you'll be returning to the Portland area where you served for a number of years and, and uh, received your uh, higher education. Uh, when you return back to this area, does it feel like home for you? It, it, does, uh, it does feel like home, uh, Jim. And, uh, you know, we we have very fond memories of uh, uh, the Portland area, the Portland, Vancouver area, um, because we have friends there. Uh, we, uh, I, 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 I always tell people about the singing Christmas tree uh, <laughs> as a memory, and uh, you, you always uh, were our favorite. You and Tim, uh, when you came out to sing, it was uh, it was amazing. I remember your husband too. I come from the piano there, so we have fond memories of uh, Portland. And uh, we, 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 it always feels like homecoming. Back, our daughter was born there, oh. and uh, and we have uh, we have great friends there. So uh, yeah, well, we are are so grateful that you're coming back to this area to help those of us who take seriously the Great Commission and what God is calling us to do. There are so many distractions that would. Uh, draw our attention away from the main thing and to remind us of what it means to be uh, a part of the body of Christ and what we're called to do together is an amazing thing. Now, in addition to your plenary um, address to the whole conference, you're also going to have an opportunity to present a workshop. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, you are the author of When Helping Works, which is an encouraging look at um, alleviating fear and pain in global missions that has made a lot of us a bit timid about how to approach uh, ministering to those abroad. Tell us a bit about um, how helping can can work when we're doing so in, in Christ's name. Right. Uh, it's a really good question, Eugene. I, uh, in the workshop, I will really will want to give time to people to ask all kinds of questions. Mm. Uh, because I find that you are absolutely right when you mention about the distractions. We uh, are going through times uh, that are quite uh, prayless in that sense, uh, and, and uh, it, the, the challenges uh, are mainly from uh, uh, secular principles uh, that, that that have worked for, say, multinational corporations, maybe even you know certain government benefits. But I think we have got we have confused the Great Commission and uh, things like foreign policy, hmm. the Great Commission and policies about uh, 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 global foreign aid. And so there's a lot of anxiety that what is going wrong for, uh, within the macro level or political sphere and economics when it comes to aid. You know, aid is is distributed from government to government. But I find that the same arguments and accusations about aid from government to government are applied to Christians. And I think that that is really a ploy of the enemy to distract us from this wonderful mission of God, 
that we are called to participate in because of the finished work of Christ. That even when we uh, experience some kind of discomfort or maybe even um, a form of pain, uh, uh, we need to look at it more as meaningful as opposed to a loss. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we're getting caught up in trying to be uh, 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 to be comfortable and protect what is mine from, or and it's always against the other, and the other is always, uh, you know, uh, from outside of the West. And so I think we really need to revisit why we're doing missions and whose mission it is, uh, and distinguish it from uh, government aid to aid. Oh, Dr. Badriaki, I am so grateful that you are coming back to the Portland area, that you are going to be available to teach us and people who are listening now and who will be at Mission Connection this weekend will have the opportunity to have a clearer understanding of how as Christians we can approach uh, this subject. Uh, I should mention that Dr. Badriaki will be the keynote on Saturday morning, so uh, he'll be speaking from the Worship Center, and you'll have an opportunity to hear from him directly. Uh, once again, thank you for for coming back for Mission Connection. We look forward to seeing you again from hearing uh, to hearing from you, and uh, again, thank you for your time here this afternoon. You are absolutely welcome. Thank you, Eugene, and say uh, thank you to James as well, because he's uh, uh, been a, a, a cool, cool person to be in touch with. Uh, yes, I will certainly do that. Thank you, Dr. Badriaki. You bet. Bye-bye. Again, Dr. Badriaki will be presenting uh, one of the workshops. In addition to that, he's going to be the keynote on Saturday morning. And it just has some uh, significant, uh, much-needed perspective. As I mentioned, he was born in Kenya, was raised in Uganda. So he has been the recipient of, as well as uh, had the uh, the Western view of how um, we engage in global uh, evangelism and uh, ministry. So looking forward to having him there. Also, uh, Dr. Stephen Yoon will be uh, one of the preliminary speakers. He grew up in South Korea. He and his wife, Joy, and their family now live in North Korea in cross-cultural uh, ministry. They've done that for 10 years, and uh, his story is just remarkable. Becky Pippert, who's the author of 11 books, the one that you may be most familiar with, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, remains a definitive guide to personal evangelism. She will be speaking on Saturday evening as the plenary speaker. And Dr. Um, Dick Brogdon, he and his wife have served among Muslims for the last uh, two and a half decades. Uh, We'll hear from him as one of the plenary speakers as well. Now, Mission Connection is coming up this Friday night and Saturday. It is a free event. It is sponsored and made available to us by local area churches, hosted this year by Rolling Hills Community Church, which, by the way, is a tremendously generous Uh, gift to the body of Christ. Uh, It is a free event, but registration, pre-registration is required. Now, there's a slight possibility that there may be some registration still available on Friday evening, for example, or Saturday morning, but you don't want to risk that pre-registration is really advised. Uh, You can also sign up for lunch. You can pick which workshops you plan to attend, and all of that is available for you on the website, Mission Connection. That's, again, spelled with an X, missionconnection.com. 100 workshops, uh, over 100 exhibits and resources. We'll be broadcasting live from Rolling Hills uh, earlier in the day from 4 to 6, just before Mission Connection kicks off in earnest. And I'll be planning on spending the weekend with many of you there as well. So do check it out. Looking forward to a great, inspiring, challenging, edifying weekend. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Beth and David Borum. They're the co-authors of When Faith Becomes Sight, Opening Your Eyes to God's Presence All Around You, published by InterVarsity Press. And of course, on Friday, we'll broadcast live from Mission Connection this year at Rolling Hills Community Church. It's going to be a great weekend. Uh, last year, I think there was something like 5,500 people who attended, and we would love for you to be among that number in 2020. Go to missionconnection.com for more information and to register for that event. Well, martyrdom has dropped in Nigeria, but it's soaring in Burkina Faso. China brings uh, 16 million more Christians onto the Open Doors 2020 World Watch List of Christian persecution. If you want to know what's happening in the body of Christ around the world, certainly Mission Connection is a great place to start, but you may also want to check out Open Doors 2020 World Watch List of Christian Persecution. They say that every day, eight Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day. Every week, 182 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Many are destroyed. And every month, 309 Christians are imprisoned unjustly. So reports the 2020 World Watch List. It's the latest annual accounting from Open Doors of the top 50 countries where Christians are the most persecuted for their faith. We cannot let this stand. That's a quote from the president and CEO of Open Doors, David Curry, during a 2020 lists unveiling in Washington, D.C. People are speaking out and we have an obligation to hear their cry. Well, the listed nations comprise 260 million Christians suffering high to severe levels of persecution, up from 245 million in the last uh, year's list. Another 50 million could be added from the 23 nations that fall just outside the top 50, such as Mexico, Chad, and the the Democratic Republic of Congo, for a ratio of one in eight Christians worldwide facing persecution. Last year, 40 nations scored high enough to register very high persecution levels. This year, it reached 45. Again, that's up five from last year. Where is it hardest to follow Jesus? At the top of that list, North Korea. And as I mentioned, one of the plenary speakers, Dr. Um, Stephen Yoon, uh, is living and ministering in North Korea. That is the hardest place to follow Jesus in the world. Number two, Afghanistan. Number three, Somalia. Number four, Libya. Number five, Pakistan. Eritrea at number six, Sudan at seven, and Yemen at number eight. Number nine, Iran. And number 10, India. Well, Open Doors has monitored Christian persecution worldwide since 1992. North Korea has ranked number one since 2002 when the watch list began. Well, the 2020 version tracks the time period from November 1st of 2018 to October 31st of 2019 and is compiled from reports by Open Doors workers in more than 60 countries. The list provides the most comprehensive grassroots data on Christian persecution, but it's much more than that. It's a sounding of an alarm. Last year, uh, Christianity Today noted uh, Asia rising as India entered the top 10 for the first time, while China rose from number 43 to, thir- to 27. The trend continues as two in five Asian Christians now face high levels of persecution, up from one in three the previous reporting period. I won't go over all the numbers, but I will say if you want to have a clear understanding of what it means to follow Christ in places outside the comfort of our own country, you might want to check out Open Doors World uh, Watch List, which has now been published for 2020. 
Also, The Voice of the Martyrs has released their prayer guide to help Christians pray for persecuted believers. It's one thing to know what's happening. It's another to pray along with others around the world for those who are facing severe persecution. Voice of the Martyrs has released a detailed prayer resource. I've uh, relied on that for many years. It's a great resource to have available. You can hang the map on the wall. You can uh, look for information on the lists and incorporate that into your prayer life, which I'm sure is regular and consistent. That includes prayer for the persecuted church. Well, they are, uh, they detailed a prayer resource to help Christians in the U.S. support the growing number of believers being attacked for their faith abroad. The Oklahoma-based Christian Persecution Watchdog Group's 2020 Global Prayer Guide was created with the goal of helping American Christians better understand and pray for Christians living in intolerant countries. Now, I have to admit, there was a time earlier in my Christian faith that I had to pray and ask God to give me a real concern about the lost, a real concern about the persecuted church, to break my heart as his heart breaks over those who suffer. Uh, Voice of the Martyr spokesman uh, Tom uh, Nettleton, who also hosts the organization's program, uh, told the Christian Post that the guide on various nations was based on extensive research by the group staff and regional Christian communities. A great deal of work and effort has gone into making sure that the 2020 Global Prayer Guide is accurate and up-to-date so that People can use it to pray knowledgeably for Christians and nations where they are persecuted. The guide divides countries that are intolerant to Christianity into two categories, restricted nations and hostile areas. A restricted nation would be a country that engages in government-sponsored repression of Christians, with examples including China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Vietnam. By contrast, a hostile area is a region where Christianity is technically legal, but persecution occurs through families or factions, with examples including Colombia, India, Kenya, Nigeria, and Sri Lanka. Nettleton said that he believed a reason for the rise in persecution was due to the growth of the church in hostile and restricted nations. God is at work. The spirit is moving. Part of the reason we see more persecution in some of the nations where Voice of the Martyrs work is because the church is growing fast, he went on to say. More Christians, whether in China, in India, or in Muslim countries of the Middle East, means there are more targets for potential persecution. He hopes the guide will be a valuable tool for American Christians to pray in more detail for those suffering persecution for their faith. My hope is American Christians will put it next to their Bible and use it throughout the year to guide their prayers for our persecuted brothers and sisters, who, by the way, assume we are praying for them. They assume that we take the scriptures seriously and that we are following uh, what the scriptures say. Well, the release of the guide comes as the communist Chinese government is expected to implement harsher measures against religious groups there. The Vatican News outlet Asia News recently reported that starting the 1st of February, that's next month, religious groups will be expected to seek government approval for more aspects of their lives and will be required to promote the Communist Party, which explains why there is a thriving underground church. Religious organizations must spread the principles and policies of the Chinese Communist Party, the ruling says, as well as national laws, regulations, rules to religious personnel and religious citizens. In other words, they're deputizing those who are following Christ to do the work of the Communist Party. We can pray effectively along with other believers for the persecuted church. And again, the Voice of the Martyrs has made this um, resource available Uh, 2020 Global Prayer Guide. You can either just go to the Voice of the Martyrs website or Google 2020 Global Prayer Guide to get your copy. I want to thank James Blinn for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day, and have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.